Well, I want to thank uh, my mother for writing that uh, introduction so that Rich could read it for us this morning. Um, and uh, thank the uh, Connecticut Children's Hospital and your leadership team for inviting me to come this morning. Um, I spent some time with uh, the pediatric surgeons last night learning about Dr. Cook and was grateful for the opportunity to, to learn more about the heritage of uh, his contributions and of your institution. So I wanted to um, just mention that you and I look different. We come from different places and we um, have different experiences that inform us and bring uh, different strengths to the work that we do. In spite of the diversity that we strive for, there are some things that we have in common, which are our commitment to relieving pain and suffering in children. Um, one of the interesting ironies I've noticed is, uh, as I've matured as a surgeon is that um, while we are committed every day to coming in and relieving pain and suffering in uh, the children that we care for, we often will walk past a colleague who is suffering. And that irony and inconsistency of that uh, has become a bit of a theme for me in the last few years. So I wanted to uh, invite those of you who are less than 40 to do a little audience participate. There, aren't, there is no one less, oh yes, there are a few. Um, who, who, who is this? Just, it's Morpheus, right? Morpheus is a freedom fighter. And uh, in this question that's, that's being in, invited to you uh, as you look at this picture is to take the red pill or the blue pill. As you know from uh, urban legends, uh, uh, the blue pill allows you to return blissfully to your current life and change nothing except reality or whatever alternate truth is. And, and uh, whereas the red pill uh, causes you to step outside of your comfort zone, become a bit of a freedom fighter like Morpheus is and engage in the cause. And so every, you know, a year ago, we kind of memorialized the 9-11 event, the tragedy that occurred in New York. Uh, it seems to me that every day there are tragedies that occur in healthcare, one of which is that we come together and learn about something that's important and then step away without having uh, noticeable behavior change. So my invitation along with Morpheus is to find one thing that you can share this morning with a colleague who wasn't here, or one thing is that, that you can do that will uh, change your footprint and that of the wellness of the people that you work with. So here's the agenda. Um, we live in a very difficult time. Uh, there are super wonderful opportunities that we have and yet there are uh, challenges that we face. There are uh, shootings and, and uh, the loss of children that we invest in. We also live in an unusual profession. We um, care for poor, needy people, and also those who are uh, injured and, uh, and have difficult problems that they didn't ask for. We began to talk about mistakes we make in healthcare about 20 years ago, be 20 years ago next year in December. And along with that, some uh, insightful people who happened to have been my previous bosses um, shortly after the IOM report was, was published, began to talk about the challenges that care providers face as they work in an increasingly corporatized system. They identified Christine Maslach's three areas of uh, burnout 
and, uh, and began to measure that in uh, surgical care. They did find out, or as they also uh, called out the fact that, that some of the ways that we do our work are causing us to have increasingly more difficult problems. There are things that occur in our professional life, whether it's uh, increasing workloads, an unfortunate relationship with the EMR, the efforts to uh, stay current with MOC activities, in addition to the vicissitudes of caring for patients and trying to help our family and spouses be happy with the attention we provide. I spent some time thinking about your hospital in preparation for this and was at another institution a week ago. I was actually surprised to recognize that when people look at the title behind my name, it sometimes makes them angry. The idea about quality and safety being uh, something that we poke each other with rather than a tool to help us improve care was something I really hadn't considered before. A lot of it depends on the culture of your institution, but it helps me to understand that when we talk about making improvements in care, that we're trying to give people information so they, they can learn how to do better and not to judge them. All in all, the, the changes that are occurring in the corporatization of our healthcare and the increasing measurements that we have can cause increased depersonalization, uh, a sense of professional dissatisfaction, loss of meaning. The problem with this is as we add these things up together, our patients sense our burnout. They, when we are depersonalized, they become a diagnosis instead of, instead of a child or a person. They, uh, they feel our exhaustion and they recognize that the care that we're providing is not what we could and they uh, bridle against that, that it bothers them. This is not something that only occurs with surgeons. The light blue is an indication of how this uh, burnout concept has changed in the last few years. And so all of us are subject to it. And in some professions like emergency medicine or critical care, the, uh, the slope of this change is frightening. You and I came to healthcare with a lot of skills and talents. Um, the things that brought you to healthcare make you a wonderful provider. Sometimes there are other things about your personality that come with your outstanding physician skills that can make it harder for you to find balance or create boundaries in your life. The challenge with this personality type in the, work that, in the workplace that we've described is that as the exhaustion and the depersonalization get worse, the likelihood that we're gonna make a mistake and hurt somebody with the devastating consequences grows. So, uh, on a personal note, uh, the electronic medical record and keeping up in my professional life was never as difficult as dealing with my inadequacies or the mistakes I made or the complications with patients. So, in a somewhat, uh, using a palate cleanser here and creating a little a light moment for a second. I know none of you watched the Olympics uh, two months ago. You were probably vigilantly reading your uh, professional journals, but I just wanted you to know there was an Olympics back in February, okay? And with that Olympic theme, I wanted to invite you to remember what you can about the Olympics in China uh, 10 years ago. What do you remember about the Olympics in China. 
there's some, a couple things that were very, very noteworthy. The first one was the beginning of the gold rush, okay? 20-some gold medals. That's when Phelps began his first uh, uh, sojourn into the Olympics. The second thing was is that the Jamaicans became the dominant track and field team in the sense that the fastest people in the world uh, were now Jamaicans instead of Americans. There's one other thing that's very important that a lot of people overlooked, which has a lot of relevance to what we do in healthcare. The 4x100 relay team is the fastest men and, and women in the world who compete against other countries to win the gold medal. Historically, the Americans always won this race. And um, in the Beijing Olympics, the American team dropped the baton and was disqualified. 30 minutes later, the American women, the four of the fastest women in the world, dropped their baton and were disqualified as well. What does this, what does this have to do with you and I? These people prepared their entire life to be excellent at what they did. They were surrounded by world-class partners and colleagues that helped them to be better and better. This is exactly the environment that you work in. You've trained your entire life to be excellent in caring for uh, injured and wounded children, and yet, and you've surrounded yourself with world-class individuals that have come to work every day to do the same thing. And yet, every day, you and I have trouble passing the baton, and events occur that cause people to feel victimized. The patients feel uh, betrayed. Uh, you and I feel wounded and less uh, duty ready to come to work, and the institution takes a hit as well. About 20 years ago, uh, Albert Wu, uh, who is a resident at MGH, noticed an event that occurred in the pediatrics department where he worked. He uh, recognized that when a colleague made a mistake, that the culture of the institution was not supportive, but rather vindictive and, and judgmental. And so he coined this term called the second victim. Now some people bridle at this term. I'll come back to this in a moment. Uh, but uh, the, the second victim has been in place for 20 years. So rather than introducing a different theme, I would just continue to use that and come back to maybe some uh, repentant changes later in my talk. But the summary is that people in the second victim mode feel like they have failed their patient. They have a loss of confidence and oftentimes they have difficulty focusing and making decisions afterwards. This is not an uncommon problem. And so part of my uh, purpose in this talk is to help you give this a name and begin the process of making it comfortable or at least appropriate and acceptable to talk about this. The other important part about this is that very few healthcare institutions have addressed this. And, um, and so mine was one, and I will share with you a little bit about our journey in, uh, in help trying to fix this. One of the things that happens when an, an event occurs in a physician or a patient's life is that there are changes in the person's personality and the resources that they bring to work every day. I wanted to ask you this question. Now, I know that many of you are super young, but some of you have grandchildren and some of you have children and so I'm just going to ask you would you like the surgeon operating on your child today 
to be having flashbacks or not to have slept for several days or to come into the operating room and be angry at the people that they're working with? Would you want them to be, uh, have feelings of remorse or have difficulty focusing on the work that they're doing on your child or your grandchildren? Okay, uh, Rich, can you hum the Jeopardy music for us, please? Okay. okay, what is the question that this is the answer to? One medical school class each year. How many physicians commit suicide in the United States? So, proportionally to other professions, we are a risk group. And just to be clear about this, these are male physicians. Trainees and women physicians have more trouble with this. So this is just the, the easy statistic. I wanted to pause for a second and tell a story. There will be a few more. I'm a recovering scoutmaster, so that's how we kept the kids from burning the forest down and cutting the tents up. So uh, the man on the left, my left, is um, Evan Feldman. Evan was the valedictorian of the Harvard Medical School the year that he graduated. He went to Stanford and was the chief resident in general surgery. Um, one of my partners worked for Evan and when he moved to Chicago to become a vascular surgeon. Three months after his arrival in Chicago, he killed himself. How does somebody who was the best student at Harvard Medical School, the leader of the Stanford residency program, move to a new position with all this potential and yet within three months commit suicide. Um, here's your homework assignment. The woman on the right is Kim Hyatt. If you search Kim's name and put Seattle next to it on Google, you will read a sad story about someone who like I was involved in extracorporeal support for a long time and was really exceptional what she did. Uh, so I'll invite you to look that up another time. I wanted you to uh, uh, think a little bit with me about um, what the second victim syndrome is like. There are two really well-written articles about this that would be worth your time. The first one is uh, written by Carol Ann Moulton, who's a paddlebiliary surgeon in Toronto. She interviews 40 people who are um, senior practitioners and has them go through a, a guided interview, explain what it was like to have an adverse event with one of their patients and how they coped with it, what they experienced. In a similar fashion, Susan Scott, Dr. Scott, um, is the chief quality officer in the University of Missouri system. And she has written a really spectacular article explaining the, the cascade of events and experiences that occur after this. So I'd like to walk you through that for a second. When a person makes a mistake of this nature, the best way to describe this, at least in Dr. Scott and Dr. Moulton's experience, is to cause, call this a chaos and accident response event. Um, for those of you who have experienced it, it is a physical experience. Your heart races, your skin sweats, the blood pools in your leg, and sometimes you have difficulty thinking clearly. Um, when this happens, one of the best things that can occur is to have a colleague come help you resolve the problem. 
speaking in the first person. Uh, we often wander through the operating rooms um, to see what our partners are doing. A few years back, one of my colleagues was doing an operation, so I walked in the room and watched for a few minutes, and then I asked a question. At the curtains parted, the mist separated, and they recognized that they had made a mistake. So two of us scrubbed in and helped them resolve the problem. Um, the feedback about this weeks later from them was um, helpful to me and rewarding, I think, to our team because uh, they felt supported and helped in this situation, which would have been otherwise devastating both to them and to the child. Second stage is this issue of intrusive reflections. When an event occurs and you go home that night and close your eyes, you don't sleep, but instead the videos begin to play. One of my, uh, I took medical leave a couple years ago to have a joint replacement. And I had a mediastinal tumor uh, that I'd uh, biopsied and it was time for the patient to have a resection. One of my partners is technically and clinically spectacular. They're all good, but he's just exceptional. So he took over the patient, and uh, during the course of the resection, the patient had a devastating, unreparable vascular injury and died in the operating room. Uh, I came back to work and uh, doing uh, uh, quality things instead of clinical things, and uh, saw them one day and said, you know, the, are the kids keeping you awake at night? And, and his response was, uh, when I close my eyes, the video starts to play again. And so I invited him into my office where we debriefed for a time and, and, um, and began uh, continuing to work to help him restore some sense of personal integrity. There was nobody in our hospital who was better prepared to care for that child. So the third stage is an issue of a kind of trying to feel normal again within, uh, within the context of your workplace. Um, with, because of the social activities or behaviors of our colleagues, sometimes we are isolated. Our colleagues feel that we need some space, and so they don't approach us about this or talk about it with us. We, in turn, assume that because they're not talking to us, they must be talking about us or don't want to be around us. And so that brings a new form of uh, another aspect of burden that um, is, adds to the difficulty of this. Because of the workplace environment that we work in, in a heavily regulated industry, people, uh, when an event occurs, a series of waves of investigative efforts come through to attempt to make sure that the care that happened does not reach another child. That is really important. That's what peer review does. But when peer review comes and talks to you, and then patient safety talks to you, and then legal and risk talks to you, and then you go through M&M, and then maybe if uh, you feel the need to disclose to the family and make some kind of compensatory arrangement, then you go through uh, a series of meetings with your colleagues to talk about how the standard of care was or wasn't met and so forth. So the, the po point is, is that again and again and again, uh, the story is being told. And then as you see perhaps another patient that looks just like this one, you're reminded of the event. The, the summary is that the scab is picked off again and again and again. So 
at some point, um, in, whether in desperation or just in common sense, people look for emotional help. Um, if it's available within your institution, that's absolutely spectacular. Most physicians won't use employee assistance. It's a wonderful resource and would be very useful for you and I to use, but most won't. But they will respond often to the outreach from peers. For some reason, the conversation with the peer is somewhat more cleansing and, and freeing than it is when you work with EAP. Um, when I had this experience several years ago, I had been uh, the vice chair of the surgery department, the president of the medical staff, I'd been the chief of surgery. I had lots of contacts and resources within my institution. I approached the hospital and couldn't find help. I approached the university and was sent to the chaplaincy office. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a Latter-day Saint. I was a bishop in the Mormon church. I was worked in the stake presidency, if you know about that. I oversaw nine congregations at one time in my life. I have enough chaplains coming out of my ears. I didn't need a chaplain. What I needed was a therapist. And so, um, and so that really wasn't helpful. So I had to go into private community to get my support. So here's the kind of the summary. What happens to people afterwards? The reason I walked you through this wasn't uh, therapy for me, but really to help you understand that when you approach a colleague, it's really important to help them understand that the feelings that they're having will pass, will go away, and, and that they will feel better, they will become normal again, and that uh, and this has a, a uh, there will be closure at some point. So people tend to respond to these events in the following ways. Some people leave. They just can't stand to be in the institution anymore. Um, when I uh, work in the operating room, there are some days that it doesn't matter really which anesthesiologist I work with because the all, they're all good. But there are some days when my anxiety level is high and I am really anxious about the outcome of a patient. And it's a difficult problem. And in situations like that, there are a certain group of anesthesiologists that I want working with me. In our group, we call them SEAL Team 6. Those are the people that we want in the operating room with us when we have or having a bad day. A few years back, before our institution was a little bit more uh, woke about this problem, um, one of my neurosurgical colleagues had a difficult case, and the anesthesiologist um, uh, prepared to care for the child postoperatively, and an event occurred, and the child became had a devastating neurologic injury. That individual was one of our SEAL Team Six people. So two anesthesiologists left our institution at that time because of our failure to respond, and they took with them some other CRNAs, all of whom were what we would consider spectacular clinicians and people that we de desperately wanted to be with us during difficult times. Uh, so there is a personal loss that occurs when this occurs. The second way of approaching this is people just hunker down and, and cope. And so you can pick them out in the operating room when you see them. Uh, we had a, an injury oh, several years back uh, during a central line placement. And, uh, and uh, the child ended up losing the leg in spite of efforts with heparinization and so forth. Um, and uh, the orthopedist that removed the leg um, uh, and, uh, and the one who cared for the patient uh, during the uh, uh, 
attempts to save the leg and then and the post-op. Both of them have left our institution as well because, because of uh, difficulties of coping with this and, and institutional trouble helping them move through it. There's a third way of approaching this, which is learning from this. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of these skills in a minute. But, but figuring out that this uh, event does not define your professional life is really important. And the way, the way to best move through that is to have colleagues help reassure you about that. Um, a, a compliment to the institution that I work in, as, as this conversation began to occur more openly, Emory began to be a little bit more thoughtful about uh, resources they provided. And so in the winter edition of Emory Magazine, there is a medical magazine, there are a lot of there's a huge article that has people from various parts of the institution talking about personal experiences with compassion, fatigue, burnout, and recovering from an adverse event. Um, this is a relative of mine who's a lot younger than I am who, um, who uh, had part of that article. And basically, it, uh, uh, the, the quote is to remind us that when something like this occurs, the most devastating thing that we can do is leave the person alone. We know that we all mourn differently when things don't go the way we want to, but, but invitations to talk in a confidential manner uh, without addressing details of the event, but rather to talk about their uh, well-being and your interest in them and your admiration for them and your, uh, your commitment to helping them be successful in, in working through these issues is, uh, is priceless. Um, Okay, Don, uh, I wanted to thank you for loaning me your cell phone last night. <laughs> who, knows, who knows what this is called? This has a name, okay, and it's famous, okay? What's the name of this? It's called the brick, the brick. It is not a personal defense item, okay? It's the original cell phone, and it became famous in the movie Wall Street, okay? Michael Douglas used this to do his deals. Now this is another palate cleanser. This phone represents to me the way we communicated in 1987 when the movie was famous. What captures my attention is you and I have cell phones in our hands that are computers that can take us anywhere in the world and answer any question we want. And yet, in the context of culture surrounding adverse events and how we communicate with us, we are often in a place where we're using the brick instead of iPhone 10 or a Galaxy cell phone. We can do better. Deming was a quality leader. He reminded us that every system that we work in gets exactly the results that we built into it. We get what we deserve because we created the system. And so one of my invitations this morning is for you to think about the system that you work in. You own the results because you're complicit with it. So if we want different outcomes, we have to change the system we work in. Dr. Campbell was one of my attendings as a young person and became the chief medical officer and chief of staff in the University of Michigan system. He wrote that article with Dr. Greenfield that I referenced earlier in the talk. His important point, in addition to acknowledging the problem of burnout in his colleagues and himself, was that 
We teach people to be spectacular physicians and surgeons, but oftentimes we don't teach them the coping skills that are necessary in order to live the life of a physician and surgeon. And so, once again, we can rebuild this through our morning report, M&M, and divisional conferences to help create a different culture. I want to talk in the next 10 minutes quickly about four things that you can do. Um, Tate Shanafeld is a chief uh, wellness officer at Stanford. He spent a highly decorated career at the Mayo Clinic studying burnout, the second victim system, and syndrome, and coping. And he identified in this article, which I invite you to read, 10 important items that will help us be more resilient. Other people have built on this as well. And so my point is that there are lots of resources now which didn't exist a few years ago. This book on resilience by Southwick and Chowdhury is really worth reading. It talks about Navy SEALs and abuse survivors and how they cope with the difficulties in their life. And they identified 10 points. Each of these is worth about 30 minutes, but I'm gonna talk for just a few minutes about a couple of them. And this is the, the downside of this talk. For those of you who feel that walking from the second to the third floor on the stairs is all you can cope with as far as your fitness activity for the day, I've got some bad news for you. If you wanna be durable and resilient, physical fitness is the foundation of what you're doing. It can come in a variety of ways, whether it's yoga, uh, Pilates, whatever you want, uh, but fitness and paying attention to exercise is vital to being resilient. This book, Spark, by Dr. Rady, uh, is a dynamite book that talks about the mental health uh, blessings of this, the advantages of being fit in your professional life and your personal life. Each of us has different spiritual backgrounds. It is important to recognize that these things can be a huge asset to us when we're casting around trying to recover from something like this. And going back to first principles of our belief systems with a, and helping review those with a colleague can be a real inflection point in our recovery. Carol Dweck is, uh, uh, is worth listening to. You can go to YouTube and, and search her name and get this great YouTube talk in addition to this book which talks about how we deal with uh, failure. You all have known colleagues who were very, very competent, but when something went wrong, they shifted gears and went in a different direction. You may have a child who is gifted, and yet when a, a test has failed, instead of chuckling and saying, oh, what can I learn from this, they in turn uh, stop trying or, or, or change their focus. The growth mindset helps us to, to remember that that uh, everyone who's successful has a litany of failures in their past and helps us repurpose our approach to making mistakes and failure by making it a growth experience. So back to this issue of quality and safety. Who remembers or knows, are any of you world travelers? Who's been to cool places? Raise your hand, been outside the country, okay? What is, all right, Mike, what is Tenerife? You got any idea what Tenerife is? Yeah, those, uh Okay, so it's in the Canary Islands, okay, and if you search it today, the first thing that comes up is there are a zillion Marriott hotels on the beach in, in Tenerife, okay? But as Mike pointed out, if you're a pilot, 
Tenerife is the site of the worst, worst aviation accident in history. 583 people died. If we explore for just a minute what happened, it's even more uh, poignant. The pilot of the KLM flight was the chief quality officer for KLM, the pilot's pilot, the person who was in charge of instructing all the others to keep uh, their skills up. Uh, landing in a storm, refueling, uh, the Dutchman spoke with the Spaniard at, at, uh, in the tower and said, can we, can we leave? Neither one of their English apparently was sufficient, and the Dutchman thought they said, sure. The rest of the people in the cockpit said, I don't think they said take off. And this was an era when the sky god still existed and the hierarchy was not narrow, and so the pilot took off. And as the mist parted, there was a Pan Am jet, which lets you know about when this occurred. Uh, crossing the, the runway in front of them, and there was this terrible crash. The reason I bring this up today is that when I flew up here yesterday, I didn't give one thought to the safety of what was happening. Delta has carried me hundreds of thousands of miles safely, where I really haven't spent much time thinking about it, and it's because we created a culture change in aviation that allowed us to put safety first. When Ed Bastian gets on the infomercial at the beginning of my flight, the very first thing he says is, welcome to Delta, your safety is our primary concern. Is that our primary concern when we provide patient care? Are we helping one another to provide the best care by changing our culture? Every day we come to work and we celebrate in the operating room days without an injury. And reading things like Carl Weick's book about the unexpected help us to understand the system nature of error. We have checklists that help make sure that we put the chest tube in on the right side. We do the right operation on the right patient. Um, in, in our system, we've gone through high re reliability communication training. And um, this can be painful for some of us. Um, but when we onboard someone new, we let them know what their skills are, who they are, so we don't ask a medical student to float a swan or something like that. Um, we have consistent transfer of care language. Uh, and then uh, my favorite is ARC. And I'll just walk you through an event that occurred. A nurse was uh, calling for a timeout at the beginning of a case. One of my colleagues picked up the bovie and started to operate. The nurse repeated herself, doctor, we haven't done our timeout yet. Uh, this person didn't learn very fast, they continued to operate. In our system, when someone says, I have a concern, the instruments are supposed to go down and we're supposed to stop and resolve this problem. Kept operating with the bovie. Lisa, the nurse, pulled the plug on the bovie and said, we are going to have our timeout. Now, the hierarchy in our operating room has narrowed some. There was a bit of a kerfuffle about it afterwards, but everyone got in line behind Lisa and reminded the individual they wanted to operate at this place, that they needed to do timeouts. It was our safety behavior to help us do the right thing. That meant a lot to the nursing staff, but also to the culture of the operating room. Okay, this, when we have high reliability communications, we often, learn how to, that there's more going on than we knew before, and sometimes our incident rate will go up. But in Nationwide's experience, it dropped their, their incident rate very, very low. Um, 
This is on their website, and that's why I used it. We have uh, a bit of a culture in our system, which is called the culture of no. When you approach legal to ask them about doing something, they uh, say, uh, we can't put that out there. So, shh, don't tell anybody. This is uh, a bootleg slide that lets you know that because of the high reliability activities we've had in our institution, we have gone a thousand days with no serious safety event and on one campus and two years on the other campus. And so the high reliability communications are effective and they help us not injure patients. If we don't kill patients by errors, we will have fewer second victims. Peer support. Everyone is going to have this experience. When it occurs, a person can only hear the voice on the left side of their shoulder. They only hear the voice that tells them that they're unworthy to be here, they aren't as good as their colleagues, they're never going to get over this. The persistence, the pervasiveness, and the personal nature of this injury are going to stay with them forever. Part of the peer support program is to help us by having a trusted colleague approach someone who's in crisis and invites them to talk about how they're feeling. They ask well-scripted questions that invites the person to talk about their feelings, their coping, and, and help them to begin the process of healing. It helps them get rid of these three Ps, the persistence of the event, the personal nature of the event, and the fact that it's going to influence all aspects of your life. And so really what we're trying to do is pull the person away from this keyhole where they feel like this event defines their professional life. When in reality, they've, your job is to remind them of their capability, the thousands of patients they've cared for successfully. As I mentioned before, oftentimes we think this is what they're thinking. In reality, what they're thinking is, I just would like to be normal again. I feel so isolated and alone. We have gone through the process of training members of our medical staff and nursing staff so that people in our system understand what the second victim syndrome is in burnout. We have trained a number of peer supporters and we try to embed them in each division. Uh, we're actually in the process of trying to make this an issue of common knowledge. I've been to one very prominent institution where they have an excellent nationally known program for this. And when I spoke with one of my colleagues there about it, he didn't know a thing about it. And so the idea that we think that uh, this great thing has permeated all of our, um, all of our culture is, uh, is a little awkward sometimes. We aren't as effective in communicating as we thought. When somebody needs more than some peer support, we have in-house um, uh, professionals that can help with this. Uh, I wanted to talk to the leaders in the institution briefly. Um, so uh, the way this occurred was uh, when I recovered from my event, I was angry. And so I approached the hospital leadership and uh, we had just won the Fortune 100 award for the 10th time and all the CUE people had their t-shirts on. One of them made the mistake of getting into an elevator with me with that t-shirt on. and. Um, they emerged from the elevator uh, somewhat wiser about the culture of our hospital and how we weren't, really weren't supporting the physicians. And uh, to the credit of the leadership, after a few more conversations, the chief administrative officer 
dragged uh, two of our senior clinicians in and we had a long conversation about this and began the process of creating the U Matter program. Um, I've misused my time and so I'll, uh, in another venue, perhaps we can talk about stories of successful peer support. Um, there are lots more resources now than there were uh, several years ago. Um, you can go to YouTube and watch videos about this, uh, very frank and very focused. Um, just a, a, an update, Albert Wu, uh, when he was a little pediatrics resident, is now a big shot professor at John Hopkins, and he, and he has put in place in the Hopkins system a spectacular program called RISE. Um, it would really be worth your time to go to that website, search RISE on Google and put uh, Albert Wu or John Hopkins' name in and, and it'll come right up. There's a huge number of resources there. Um, for those of you who are maybe more left brain oriented, a second victim program helps you financially as well as uh, emotionally. Um, so uh, I'd like to close by uh, inviting cl clinical leaders to do a couple things. Um, for years in morbidity and mortality, we have, uh, or morning report, we've talked about things that went well or went awry in the previous week. Um, oftentimes, this can be pretty sterile. Gratefully, it's no longer a, a personal attack as it was in the past. It's useful, though, for a senior clinician during the discussion of a complication to pause for a second and, and help the trainees move to a little different place by having senior clinicians talk about previous events that have happened in their lives to help them explain how they addressed it personally, how they discuss things or are disclosed to the family, how they work through the self-loathing and the difficulties afterwards. Um, that helps name it, give it, a, give it a, some understanding and make it okay to talk about these things. Uh, for those of you who are residents, um, providing support to your colleagues is just essential. You can do so much to help one another get through these things by creating a culture where you will talk about your feelings. It's important to be careful about talking about the details of the event outside of a protected quality environment because that's not what we're asking. A peer support group talks about your worth and, and your uh, coping as an individual, not about the details of the case. So we are not victims. We are survivors, and we can do things that will help ourselves and one another become more durable. We can understand resiliency and be, um, take better care of ourselves. We can learn about this and share it with our colleagues. Uh, we can invest in a patient safety focus so we hurt less children. And as leaders, we can make it possible to mentor and to role model younger trainees as well as our younger colleagues to help make this a safe environment to work in. Um, we came to work today to help recover sick children. We should not walk past a colleague. So back to Morpheus, red pill or blue pill. Take the red pill, talk about this with a friend, do something that will help you become more durable today. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have.